Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast, where we equip Christians to identify the core beliefs of historic Christianity, discern its counterfeits, and proclaim the gospel with clarity, kindness, and truth. And today we're going to be bringing you the audio of a live stream we did on Facebook last week with Dr. Frank Turek, co-writer of the best-selling book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, which we, by the way, just read through in our Facebook book club, which is now open. So if you want to join us for our next book study, go to Facebook dot com slash groups slash Alisa Childers Book Club. We'd love to have you a part of the community there. We'd also love to have you a part of our Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash Alisa Childers, you can check out all the different tiers. We'd love to see you join us over there. So I want to let you know about a couple of things that we have going on. First of all, if you're not following us on Instagram, head over to Instagram, search at Alisa Childers, because we do a lot of exclusive content on Instagram. We do short videos and reels that just get right to the heart of different uh, claims that come up from progressive Christianity that we can interact with from a biblical worldview. So check out Instagram for that. And I also want to let you know about something I'm very excited about. So after the book, Another Gospel, came out, I started to receive emails and even comments from people that... I met uh, when I was speaking at conferences saying, hey, I wish that there was a way to go through the book Another Gospel with my small group at church. I wish there was a curriculum or some sort of a, a program that could help equip the people in my church to interact with and answer biblically the claims of progressive Christianity. So I'm really excited to let you know about a six week study group curriculum that Tyndale has produced. And I mean, they did such a top notch job. So what you get is you get six weeks worth of videos that we made with an amazing video company. I brought in Jay Warner Wallace and John McRae of the What Do You Meme YouTube channel to help guide you through the book Another Gospel. And then there's a participant guide that has different studies each week that not just helps you to sort of absorb and analyze the information in the book, but also how to really apply it in your real life. And so I'm very excited for that. That's coming this September. So you could go to Tyndale.com. It's also going to be on Amazon very soon. It was on for a minute and then it got taken off because the release date got moved because of supply chain issues and things like that. But I think September 20th is going to be the final date. So be looking for that, the Another Gospel Participant Guide and DVD Experience. You can find both of those on Tyndale.com. All right, let's get into today's podcast. We invited Dr. Frank Turek to answer the toughest questions that YouTube could throw at him based on his material from the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Now, a lot of the questions that you're going to hear are coming from the Facebook book club. Again, if you want to join, that's facebook.com slash groups slash Alisa Childers book club. That's one of the perks you get for being in the book club is that we do a live stream with the author and your questions take priority at the live stream. So here you go. Without any further ado, here's Frank Turek. So now I want to introduce you to one of the greatest apologists alive today. He regularly visits college campuses where he presents the information from his book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, and then takes questions from skeptical and atheist college students. So Frank, welcome. We're so glad that you're here to join us. Oops, wait a minute. I got music. I got, there we go. I got a cheer for you. <laughs> Oh, we don't hear Frank. Are you here? Are you there, Frank? It says guest has muted themselves. Did you mute yourself? 
Oh no. That's Can't... probably operator error. <laughs> there we yeah, go. That was me. Sorry. <laughs> I was trying to, I was actually trying to unmute myself, but to show you what an idiot I am, I, <laughs> I hit the <laughs> You just, you I, muted. I hit the button and it muted me, which well, most atheists want to do. They want to mute me anyway. So this is the atheist button. Right, right. right. <laughs> well, I'm glad we don't have an atheist button that mutes you because you have got so much great information to share, but I want to show you something and I want to show all our viewers something that came in the mail today. So I received this cool little box that says coming soon. And it says, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's, and then I opened it up and it's Frank's new book, Hollywood Ooh, Heroes. So this is coming out. It has a little note in there. Here's the book, which um, I've read and it's excellent. I've endorsed this book. And this is so cool. It's got popcorn and like a little bag to do a little movie night with the book, some candy. My daughter already took the Skittles, so the Skittles are gone. But <laughs> thank you for sending that. Hey, for those who are, you know, let's do a little teaser for this book because you are actually coming back around the release date, which I believe is May 3rd, to talk more about this book. But give us a little teaser, and I think there's a pre-order bonus that people uh, need to be aware of. So let us know about that. Yeah, there is. Actually, my son, my eldest son, who is actually a a uh, major in the Air Force and is an intelligence officer. Right now, everyone in the intelligence field is dealing with the Russia-Ukraine thing, so he hasn't been available lately. But he's also a graduate of Southern Evangelical Seminary, where I went, where you're going. He actually, when he was in the uh, Air Force, uh, went through the same course you're going through and got his degree. And about five or so years ago, he's such a movie buff, we got talking. And I said to him, you know, we should write a book on all the parallels, particularly from superhero movies to the ultimate hero, Jesus. And so we go through about, let's see, seven different movie franchises, Iron Man, Captain America, Harry Potter, Harry Potter, people are going, what? Yeah, you'd be surprised. Uh, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Batman, Wonder Woman, Maybe I'm leaving one out. Anyway, we show how all these stories and all these heroes point to the ultimate hero, Jesus of Nazareth. And we try and give good biblical life lessons in there, even apologetics. So if you have young people in particular that want to get more interested in Christianity, this might help them do it if they love superhero movies or movies like Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. And uh, so if they go to HollywoodHeroesBook.com, HollywoodHeroesBook.com, and uh, they pre-order the book, we're going to send them the audio version for free. In fact, the audio version we have, and we can give it out for free until May 3rd. So if people are interested in this book, I highly encourage them to order it before May 3rd so they can get the audio version for free. And thanks so much for endorsing it, Elisa. Yeah. I hope it's going to be a fun book for people. I, I think it will be. I, one of the, the reasons I was so interested in it is because I, I have a lot of conversations with my kids based around the Marvel movies. They love the Marvel Marvel movies. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, it's it's one of those things where as a parent, you're trying to decide what do I let my kid watch and what, mm -hmm. you know, what can 
we have good conversations around, and we've had a lot of really amazing gospel conversations around those Marvel movies, even showing the parts that we might disagree with, the parts that point to the real story, like, you know, Tony Stark giving his life for the world. Mm -hmm. Spoiler alert for people who haven't seen it. But uh, yeah, I I talk about that a lot with the kids. So I think this is a good guide for parents, especially whose kids are already exposed to all this stuff anyway. Why not use that as a great opportunity to point to the gospel? So Frank, we're here tonight to talk through some of the information in your it's really just one of the greatest apologetics books ever written. It's one of the books that I recommend people read if they say, where do I start with apologetics? I always say, you have to start with, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. That's because you cover so much information in the book. And so we have a book club on Facebook, and we have just read through the book. And so at the end of every book that we read, we get to interview the author. So a lot of these questions are going to be coming tonight from the Facebook book club group. And I also want to let people know that if you're watching you want to be a part of the book club group, after the live stream tonight, the book club will open back up so you can join for the next book that we read. We haven't chosen it yet, but you can go to facebook.com slash groups slash Elisa Childers Book Club, and you can request membership there. But without any further ado, Frank, we're going to get to some questions here. But I'd love it if you could just give us a summary of what this book is about, because you go to college campuses, you present this information, and essentially it is building a case for Christianity from the ground up. So how does that work when somebody says, how do you build a case for Christianity from the ground up? Well, if, if you like the book, you can really thank Dr. Geiser, who passed on about a year, two and a half years ago. He was the one that had the outline long before I met him, and I just tried to take his outline and, and wordsmith it a little bit. And uh, so all the research, most of the research he did, and uh, what the book does is it goes through 12 points that show Christianity is true, but for the sake of simplicity, no one's going to remember 12. So when we go to a college campus, we just investigate four questions, Elisa. Does truth exist? Does God exist? Are miracles possible? And is the New Testament telling us the truth about the resurrection? Because if truth exists, if God exists, if miracles are possible and Jesus really rose from the dead, then game over Christianity is true. So we tend to go through those four questions on a college campus or in a church or a high school to show them why Christianity is true. Because look, if Jesus rose from the dead, game over Christianity is true. Of course, if he didn't rise from the dead, game over, it's false. And even Paul said this, right? If Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, your faith is in vain. Now, if he has risen from the dead, then we can look at his teachings based on reliable documents. They don't have to be inerrant. We can look at Jesus's teachings and see what he said about the Old Testament and what he promised about the New Testament. And he confirmed the Old Testament as the word of God, and he promised the New Testament. And so from Jesus's teachings, we can determine or discover, I should say, that the Bible is the word of God. Now, there's a lot of details in there, but that's basically the bottom line. And you say, well, why trust Jesus? Well, look, I just have a personal policy. If somebody predicts and accomplishes his own resurrection from the dead, I just trust whatever the guy says. Okay, so that's kind of the the big picture of the book. You know, it's 448 pages, so I'm just kind of summarizing the outline. But we go through those four questions when we're doing it verbally. If you want the details, the book goes through 12 points that are a little bit tighter, more tight of an argument. 
And what I always tell people about the book also is that you can read through the whole thing, and then likely what you'll discover is that there's one chapter that you kind of that kind of lights up for you, whether it's the resurrection or maybe it's the biblical reliability chapters or maybe it's the science chapters. You cover so much ground in this book that it's such a great introductory apologetics group for people to even figure out, hey, what am I interested in in the realm of apologetics? Because not everybody can't know everything. And I discovered early right. on after reading that book that I, I like the science stuff, but I'm not probably going to dive deep in the science stuff. But what was really compelling and interesting to me was all the topics around the New Testament. What did Jesus say about the New Testament? How do we know that the New Testament is reliable? So that's the area that I chose to do a deep dive and start to get other books and other resources on. And I think your book is so great because I've met people who read your book and said, man, after I read that book, I just couldn't wait to dive into the science stuff because that's what really just sort of uh, came alive for them. So again, great book to get. It's called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And we've got our first question here. Frank, and uh, this question is, hi, Frank and Elisa, thanks for doing this. Frank, what argument do you find is most compelling for people you meet? Hey, great question. In fact, what you just said, Elisa, I think is the answer to this question, because different people find different arguments compelling. Uh, you know, some people are more interested in the science, other people are more interested in the moral argument for God. Others uh, have no problem believing that there's a God, but they, they're not sure that Jesus is God. So then they jump to the New Testament. And so that's kind of one of the, the approaches that Dr. Geiser always took. It was sort of the classical approach to apologetics. Like just Let's just start with truth. You, you, don't, you don't believe truth exists? Let's just start there. And then we can move on to God, then the miracles, then the New Testament and the resurrection. Um, personally, I think for most college students today, the moral argument is the one that really is relevant to them. Because look, you, you can ignore that there was a beginning. You can ignore the design. It's really hard to ignore morality because you're dealing with it every day, right and wrong. And everybody has some sort of right or some sort of cause they're supporting on a college campus. Well, in the absence of God, those are all mere just, just mere opinions, right? I mean, if there's no God who is the, the essence of goodness and righteousness, then everything's reduced to human opinion. There are no rights, no matter what side of the political aisle you're on. It's just your opinion, you know? And so people kind of wake up when you mention that to them uh, because they feel so strongly about certain justice issues, but without God, there's no such thing as justice. There's no such thing as objective right and wrong. Everything's a matter of opinion and they can't really, they can't live that way, right? So it yeah. really depends. Now, Christopher Hitchens, who I had the opportunity to debate a couple of times, he was that brilliant British atheist who sounded more brilliant than he was because he had a British accent. Christopher Hitchens thought that the most difficult argument to answer from his perspective was the fine-tuning argument, uh, part of the science. Because look, it's, 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 you really can't explain it away. That's why people come up with the multiverse argument to try and uh, multiply the probabilities that this universe would be so designed and they try and say, well, if there's enough universes out there, this one would just be designed by chance, you know, the luck of the draw kind of thing. But um, that really doesn't answer the question either. So uh, that argument there is probably for scientists, certainly the most difficult one to answer. That's why they, they, they punt to the multiverse. They're trying to avoid the obvious implication that this place is designed. 
Yeah, and Marvel movies are sort of creeping into the multiverse territory, too. So there's another point of discussion you can have with your kids when they watch the new Spider-Man or some of the the, uh, Doctor Strange and all of that that's kind of delving into the idea of the multiverse. It's a great opportunity. Oh, the multiverse and time travel. Oh, Spider-Man's dead? Nah, we're going to bring him back next movie. Yeah, right. (laughs) And the villains and everything, yeah. Tony Stark can solve. He can solve time travel in an evening. Yeah, yeah. That's (laughs) So I was just at a conference last weekend, and I was making that same point that I think the moral argument is the most compelling one, because even as you see some of these, um, in fact, everyone can, you can Google some of Frank's videos on the Cross-Examined YouTube channel, and I have never, Frank, ever seen an atheist be able to wiggle out of the moral argument because you you have such a way of taking just about every claim that they could make and pointing out how virtually every claim that's made from an atheist against the existence of God really has a moral core. And when you go mm-hmm. to the moral argument, they either have to admit moral objective moral values do not exist, and at that point, they're basically saying that you can't say it's objectively wrong to torture a child for fun. And mm-hmm. nobody wants to be that guy, or they they have to. They I've just never seen anyone be able to get out of being challenged on the moral argument. It's just it's such a compelling and profound argument. Maybe before we get to the next question, you can help us. When when you say I've heard you say this that every claim it, it has a moral core. Um, how would you take if if an atheist said you know there's so much suffering in the world? How is that have a, how is that have a moral core? Yeah, I always say, why is suffering bad if there's no God, right? Because there's no good or bad unless God exists because he is the standard of good. The the analogy I like to use, at least lately anyway, um, is uh, from sports. Uh, Why don't we use the sport that the world knows, soccer, right? How do you know that that your player scoring a goal is better than a player on the other team scoring a goal. The only way you could know that that your team scoring a goal is better is if you know the purpose of the game, right? If there's no purpose to the game, you you can't say any goal or non-goal is a good or bad play because there's no purpose. And in uh, in order for you to say, a goal for us is good and a goal against us is bad. You have to know the purpose of the game. You have to know that getting more goals is the purpose than the other, than, than having the other team score more goals against you without purpose. You can't say, here's a good play. Here's a bad play. Same thing is true in life. You can't say here's a good way to live or a bad way to live unless you know the overall objective of life, the overall purpose of life. And if there is no God, there is no purpose to life. That's the problem. And uh, so what I find, Elisa, is on college campuses, if they're going to bring up, say, something like, oh, the, the God of the Old Testament's evil, you, you have to ask them, by what moral standard are you judging that to be evil? Uh, you'd have to have a moral standard in order to say what God does is evil. You'd also have to have a purpose for life to say, well, say God kills the Canaanites. It's wrong to kill people. Okay, but what's the purpose of life? Or why is it wrong to kill people unless there is a purpose to life, right? And does, is God bound by the same rules we are? We don't, have the, uh, we don't have the authority to take life because we're not the creators of life. But of course, God, if he does exist, he has the authority to take life anytime he wants, right? I mean, if God exists, 
And there is an afterlife. People don't die. They just change locations, right? They go from this life to the next life. And it's up to God when that happens. Uh, so almost every objection, not all, but almost every objection, I discover that the atheist bring has some sort of moral core or even unbelievers. So they may be actually, they may be theists, but they object to Christianity. What about those that have never heard? That's a moral question. Mm -hmm. It impugns the morality of God. Why doesn't he get his gospel to everyone? Or why did God create people he knew would go to hell? That's a moral question. Um, there are so many moral questions that presuppose a standard uh, in order to even be brought up. And of course, they they need a standard to be answered too. The question is, where does that standard come from? Now, yeah. the moral argument doesn't prove the Christian God. It could be the Christian God, but it does show that there has to be some sort of theistic God in order to even bring up these objections for them to have any weight. Here's a question from Facebook. What's the best way you've seen to prepare our young children, elementary and middle school, for the pushback they will feel from the culture as they grow up? Well, I think one thing that you need to teach your kids is the fact that popularity is not your goal. <laughs> holiness is. And that's really hard for a kid because as a kid, all you want to do is fit in, right? Uh, so you have to really give them the tools to deal uh, with what they're going to come up against. And so I think you need to teach apologetics. You need to teach tactics, Greg Kokel's book, at a very young age. So young people can be armed just with questions. They don't even have to have answers, as you know, Lisa. They could say, well, what do you mean by that? And how'd you come to that conclusion? Why do you think that's true? Right. If we can make a bunch of little Greg Cokels around, the kids can protect themselves. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Greg is so good. At it. Hey, I want to go back to something that we just talked about, and that is morality, which is right up your alley. It seems to me and you would know better than me, but it sure seems to me this whole quest for progressive Christianity, this whole um, transition into progressive Christianity, these people who are deconstructing their Christian faith are really reconstructing another faith. And it's mostly morality driven. In other words, they don't like some of the things that they think Christianity requires them to believe from a moral perspective. And so they're rejecting that and establishing their own worldview uh, that has its own moral commands. Yeah. Uh, and much of that has to do with sexuality, as, as you well know. It really does. In fact, uh, as many of our uh, viewers today know, I'm researching and writing a book with Tim Barnett of Red Pen Logic right now about deconstruction. And in all of our research, one of the things, and, and you know, there's a big overlap between progressive Christianity and deconstruction, because obviously if somebody becomes a progressive Christian, they go through a process of deconstruction, although not everybody who goes through deconstruction ends up as a progressive Christian. But there's overlap. And the thing that is is just that it seems that all of the deconstruction movement is united on is it's this moral quest. It's basically mm. no longer is our people really interested in which beliefs are true. And many of them will outright say this. In fact, they will impugn evangelicals for being so worried about what's true. But they want to <laughs> know what's good, what's oppressive, what's not oppressive. And so, you know, this is where the moral argument comes in because you have to actually presuppose a, 
a moral standard of good by which to say that historic Christianity or even something like uh, the atonement of Jesus, uh, penal substitutionary atonement is immoral, which many in, in those camps believe that that is an immoral teaching because uh, it, it implicates the moral character of God who would require the blood sacrifice of his only son. And so that's that's a belief. And, and many of the beliefs are surrounding sexuality are beliefs that they believe are oppressive to people. And so it's really no longer about what beliefs are true, but which ones we think are morally good and which ones are, you know, leading us according to our own moral compass or our own mm -hmm. thoughts to something like healing and wholeness. Um, but I always give the example of my son who had to have a cavity drilled uh, several years ago when he was real young, and he couldn't really understand what was happening. But if it was up to him, he wouldn't have done it. He would have wanted to avoid that that doctor's appointment. But as, you know, as his mother, I have so much more information and knowing that if we don't deal with that cavity, it could burrow into the bone and cause a whole host of health problems that would cost him quite a bit more pain down the road. And so I made the call that this kind of temporary discomfort and even a little bit of pain and fear was, was worth it for the greater good and for the long run. So how much more information does God have than we do? So if we are just right. acting as our own moral standard and assuming the self, because really I think that's what it comes down to, Frank. It's either God is your authority or yourself is, is your that's authority. Right. And, and I think that's what we see play out in atheism, secular humanism, and progressive Christianity, it seems. Yeah, it's, it's either theology or meology. And a lot of people are opting for meology and I know everybody watching now already knows who you are, Elisa, but friends, Elisa's like at the top of the field here dealing with this issue. And you are about to teach at our website a new course on progressive Christianity. That's and it's right. not it's not just going to be another gospel stuff. I mean, that's that's part of it. But I think you're you're probably folding in some of the new book too, Live Your Truth and Other Lies, right? Yes, um, that's right. Well let's yeah, course. let's let people know about this because that's it's it's still registration is still open. You can go to onlinechristiancourses.com. And you're right, Frank, in the six-week teaching series of that of the course, we walk through a lot of information on progressive Christianity, but we have one whole week on deconstruction. We have uh, lots of information that's coming from the new book, Live your truth and other lies. So you kind of get uh, all of that sort of put together in this one course. And so again, uh, go to onlinechristiancourses.com, right? And and they right. can uh, and they can register for that. So And it's and the, the beauty of it is you're going to be in several Zoom sessions with Elisa uh face to face asking questions and you'll learn from one another too. That's what we do at onlinechristiancourses.com. We do Zoom sessions for Q&A. So you watch some video, but then you're going to be on with the author or the instructor and and have a back and forth, which is always fun. It's much better than typing your question into a chat and hoping somebody answers it. You know? Right. Very good. Yes. <laughs> well, while we're on the topic of sexuality, morality, mm -hmm. here's a question for you. What are Frank's thoughts on Christianity being considered sexist, specifically Paul's letters? Well, Christianity was the real woman liberator. Uh, women were not treated with the same kind of respect as men were in the first century. So I reject that idea. I think when Paul is talking about certain roles in the church, just like you have roles in a relationship, he's, he's mirroring the roles that Jesus and the Holy Spirit have with regard to the Father in the Trinity. 
Jesus and say the father are the same in essence. You know, obviously Jesus has two natures. He has a divine nature and a human nature and he is equal with the father in essence, but he has a different role, just like the Holy Spirit has a different role uh, in salvation. And so the model for human relationships is the same model that the Trinity gives us. So where a, a husband and a wife may have different roles in the relationship, they're both equally human. They're both equally made in God's image, but they have different roles, different functions. And uh, so to, to say that someone can't take a different role in a relationship because they want to be in the other role would be like Jesus saying, sorry, Father, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. I want to have your role. You need to be in my role. Well, no, that's... That's if, if Jesus can defer to the Father, then we can defer to one another in our own relationships. Yeah, and I this really came alive for me when I was studying this and really studying that first century Greco-Roman culture and just the sort mm. of sexual ethic that ruled the day in that culture, which was for men, pretty much a free-for-all. Men could they pretty much have sex with whoever they wanted to. They could uh, sodomy and pederasty was very, very popular, especially among soldiers as a way to sort of shame your opponent that you would have defeated in battle. But women were expected to be faithful to their spouses. But here comes Paul holding men to the same standard that the world was holding only women to. And in, it's mm. so elevated women by saying, you know, no, men, you can't go do whatever you want. You, you ha We all have to live. Um, in, it says here in Ephesians 5, but sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is proper for the saints. And that went for men as well. Again, just those subtle ways that we might miss as modern people of how Paul was elevating the status of women. And then, of course, we know from history with... Uh, uh, infant exposure and so many of those babies being left to die being female because of the Greco-Roman culture. Here come the Christians standing against abortion, rescuing the babies. So that early Christian movement was so female heavy. Um, I don't buy it either, Frank. I think that when we look at Jesus, we look at Paul, we look at the narrative arc of the entire uh, narrative of Scripture, starting in, from Genesis to Revelation. We have, I mean, unheard of in other cultures to have not just humans, but women specifically named as being made in in the image and likeness of God. This was just unheard of in surrounding cultures. And so I, uh, I, I think that a lot of people like to cherry pick some verses that they mm -hmm. take out of context and don't take the time to really understand and then get this idea about the way the Bible uh, perceives women. But as I've studied it, I have found the opposite to be true. I, I think that the women are from the beginning held in equal value and worth as men. But of course, like you mentioned, there's, there's difference in role and together reflecting um, that fullness of the image of God, male and female together. And it's really beautiful if people can can see it that way. But we have this culture that sort of likes to look at ourselves as our own moral compasses. And if if something is maybe, if the outcome of something is unequal, then we are, are we tend to say, well, that's not fair, but, uh, but I don't buy it either. Which is assuming a moral standard when they do yeah. that, by the way. To say that sexism is wrong is to assume a moral standard, okay? Let's let's say it is wrong. Well, by what standard is it wrong, though? Uh, what what standard are you going to replace the biblical God with in order to do that? By the way, it was Paul who wrote, "There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female." He's not saying that the distinctions go away. What he's saying is is that they're all equally valuable. They're all made in the image of God. There are no distinctions in terms of of uh, hierarchy. 
They're equal in essence and loved by the father. They may have different roles in society, but they're equal in essence. Also, this is another one of those almost embarrassing details, Elisa. What group of men is going to make up this sexual ethic when they could have done they they could have stayed with the sexual ethic they had, right? That's a good point. They're yeah. not inventing this stuff like, oh, let's make it real hard for ourselves, right? Right. Unlike Islam, where Muhammad said, you guys can have four wives, I get 15. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? No, that's a great point. It's like, if you were making up this religion, why are you going to hold men to such a high sexual yeah. standard? You'd think you'd be like, no, we weren't going to do that. It wasn't a bunch of frat boys that put this together, obviously. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> They're making right. it hard on themselves. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. All right, here's another question. Um, how would you winsomely and convincingly address professing Christians who belittle apologetics? I run into this all the time, Frank, in progressive Christianity and deconstruction, who belittle apologetics and are functional atheists in the sense that they ignore what God's word says and have no respect for the reasons we believe it and know it to be true? Well, I would ask them, uh, if, if you've already pointed out the verses that talk about giving an answer for the hope that you have, I might ask them, uh, do you believe that evangelism is important? Oh, you do? Okay, well, what if you say run up against a Muslim who already believes in God? Why, why, should, why should the Muslim believe in, in, the, in the New Testament and not the Quran? I mean, what evidence are you going to bring to bear. He's going to say, well, I believe in God. I, I know about the creation. I know about the fine-tuning. I know about the moral law. I know about all that stuff. Miracles are possible. So why should I believe you? Why shouldn't I just stay with the Quran? You, 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 if you don't get to apologetics, you're never going to be able to differentiate between what the Muslim believes and what the Christian believes. So that's number one. Number two, uh, why don't we keep this plan up where we lose 75% of our kids as soon as they leave the home by not equipping them with evidence, by not equipping them with the truth? I mean, the easiest way to get picked off in a war is to not know you're in one. And if these people haven't noticed, we're in a war for the hearts and minds of not only young people, but all people. And when you lose three out of four young people after they leave the home, actually, many of them, as you know, Elisa, are checking out before they actually leave the home because they have this thing that's informing them with all sorts of uh, misinformation. And while they may still go to church because their parents forced them to, they've already mentally checked out. Why? Because we haven't given them any reason to stay in the faith. Uh, they're, they're just adrift and mm. they're... Well, let's let's go back to the morality for a second. There's a there's a moral hazard when you grow older, and there's certainly a moral hazard when you go to college. Why? Because you don't want to do everything your parents said. You don't want to do what the Bible says. You want to fit in. You want to go out there and have fun. So you 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 have a moral incentive to look for holes in the Bible and in the Christian worldview, so you can go do your own thing. And if you haven't equipped young people with the evidence, sure, they can leave even if they know the evidence, but it's really hard to walk away from what you know is true. It's easy to walk away from something you've doubted your whole life. Mm. It's harder to walk away from something you know beyond a reasonable doubt is true. So I would, I would just point out the practicalities of apologetics to them. That's good. Um, so here's another question. Love the book and the amount of detail included in each topic. If you were writing this book today, would you include any additional topics or change any approaches to any of the questions? 
Well, two things off the top of my head we would address, it, and, and it's this has come out since we wrote the book, this atheist idea that they lack a belief in God, mm-hmm. right? And I, here's the fastest way of dealing with someone who says they lack a belief in God. Just ask them this question. Here's the proposition. God exists. Do you agree with that proposition? Do you disagree with that proposition? Or, or, or don't you know? You just don't know. If they say they agree, then obviously they're a theist. If they say they disagree, they're an atheist. If they say they don't know, they're an agnostic. Just about every atheist I asked that question of, Elisa says, oh, I don't know. I said, okay, well, you're an agnostic then, right? This idea that you lack a belief in God, first of all, doesn't really say anything about whether or not God exists. It's just a statement about your psychological state, you know? Mm-hmm. If I lack a belief a belief that uh, that Jupiter exists, Okay, that's just telling you about my psychology. It's not telling you whether or not Jupiter's really out there, right? Yeah. That's the question we're interested in. Is Jupiter really out there? Is God really out there? So saying you lack a belief doesn't really say anything. Uh, and there's several other reasons why why that's a, a silly way of arguing. I know why they argue that way. They don't want to have any burden of proof. Uh, but we would include that. And I would also probably talk more about uh, what, what I say verbally now, uh, when we talk about the new Testament and it, it kind of shocks people a little bit when I say this, but I think it's true. Um, I say that Christianity is not true because a series of documents we put under one binding, we call the Bible says it's true. In fact, Christianity would be true even if the Bible never existed. And people go, what, how can that be? Cause everyone thinks this whole thing is predicated on the Bible. No, what's predicated on the Bible or the Bible tells us that it's true, but the Bible, if the Bible had never been written, it would still be true. We just wouldn't know it because I, I asked them, how did Christianity originate? Did it originate with did it originate with a book or did it originate with an event? It originated with an event, the resurrection. There would be no book or series of books we call the New Testament unless the resurrection occurred, because you wouldn't have first century people who thought they were God's chosen people. Remember, all the writers of the New Testament, with the exception of Luke, were all Jews. They already thought they were God's chosen people. You would not have these people inventing a resurrected Jesus, a man who claimed to be God, which they thought was blasphemy, and they didn't think someone could rise from the dead in the middle of time. They thought somebody would rise from the dead at the end of time, but not in the middle of time. So you wouldn't have people inventing this. Certainly, they wouldn't invent it and would they wouldn't invent something that would get them kicked out of the synagogue and then beaten, tortured, and killed either, yeah. right? So this is not an invented story. And so I, I, I normally say to people, do you realize that there were thousands of Christians before a line of the New Testament was ever written? And they say, well, Frank, how could you be a Christian without the Book of Romans? Wait a minute. I mean, was Paul a Christian before he wrote the Book of Romans? Of course he was. That's why he wrote the Book of Romans, because he already was a Christian, right? Yeah. John was a Christian before he wrote the Gospel of John, because Jesus appeared to him. He witnessed Jesus. So they're writing what they already know to be true. They're writing it. It just shows us that it's true, but it's true prior to them writing it. This is why I like to say that the New Testament writers did not create the resurrection. The resurrection created the New Testament writers. And so I would be more explicit about that. I would fold in some of our friend Jay Warner Wallace's material from Cold Case Christianity about conspiracy theories and how 
There's really only three reasons to make up a conspiracy, to get sex, money, or power. And when you look at the New Testament writers, like they didn't get real popular with the ladies for saying Jesus had resurrected from the dead, right? They didn't get money. They weren't 21st century prosperity gospel preachers. They didn't get power. They got the opposite. They got persecuted. So there's no motive to invent this. These people paid with it with their lives and there's no motive to invent it. So I would, those are the two major things I would add or uh, adjust a little bit in the book. There's probably others, but those are the two big things off the top of my head. That's good. And I'd like to camp there on the Bible for a moment because I don't want anyone to misunderstand you. Um, we have listeners and viewers who probably come from different apologetic camps, the presuppositional camp and the evidential camp. Frank and I are evidentialists. We build classic case for Christianity. And so Frank is a great defender of the doctrine of inerrancy of the Bible. And it's the difference between pre presuppositionalism and evidentialism is how you get there. And and that's one thing I always try to explain to people is that, you know, if you're talking with an atheist, you don't have to get them to agree that the Bible is God's word or that the Bible is inerrant to be able to use the Bible as independent, multiply, uh, multiple independent attested uh, historical accounts of the life of Jesus. Because if we have the life of Jesus, then we go to Jesus. What did Jesus say about the Old Testament scripture? And like you mentioned earlier in this broadcast, what did he predict about the New Testament? And that's where we know that the, the Bible is God's revealed word. This is God's inerrant, infallible, inspired word. And so I think a lot of times, especially in the keyboard warrior culture, people sort of, they, they don't really listen to what you're saying, and they might think, oh, well, Frank is saying that, you know, the, uh, the earliest Christians didn't have a Bible, so it doesn't really matter. No, it's not at all what he's saying. Um, but what he's saying is, is that without the resurrection of Jesus, it wouldn't matter what books we had, mm -hmm. because like Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith's in vain and you're still in your sins. And so Jesus rising from the dead basically proved everything he said to be true. And he's the guy that said, this is the word of God. And so it's really just a matter of the methodology of getting there. Whereas in the presuppositional camp, you more kind of start with the presupposition that the Bible is the word of God and reason from there. And, you know, we, we both know and love great presuppositionalists as well. And I think there's value in both, but, um, but it's just sort of, would you agree it's more like the methodology of getting to the Bible being the inspired Word of God. Yeah, and that's what I don't have enough faith to be an atheist does. It, it, it takes you logically all the way to the conclusion the Bible is the inerrant Word of God. But what I'm saying is, as you just said, you don't need to convince somebody that the Bible is the inerrant Word of God to show them that Christianity is true. Right. That's a conclusion after you've accepted Christ. Then you can uh, keep going and get to the point where you say, okay, the Bible is the inerrant Word of God. But you don't have to put that high bar to get somebody to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, when the when the uh, apostles were going around converting people, either Jews to Christianity or pagans to Christianity, they didn't say, hey, in order for you to become a Christian, you have to believe the entire Old Testament is the word of God. No, they were giving evidence for the resurrection. See that. I guess I could say it this way. Inerrancy is not a premise. Inerrancy is a conclusion. You don't start with inerrancy. You end with inerrancy. And even if you don't get all the way to inerrancy, you can still be a Christian. I just think that people who 
uh, don't believe in inerrancy or disagreeing with Jesus. And it's never a good place to disagree with Jesus. Okay. (laughs) But you can still be saved and not believe in inerrancy. Yeah. Yes. And I, I have a blog post on my site. I just pulled up because when I was first studying all this stuff, it just, this blew my mind, Frank, that if you just, even if you never opened a Bible and all you had were the 10 or so non-Christian historical sources around about mm-hmm. Jesus within about 150 to 200 years of his life, if that's all you had, you could know that Jesus was known to be wise and virtuous. He had a brother named James. He was known to perform miracles. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. His crucifixion was accompanied by darkness and an earthquake. He had many Jewish and Gentile disciples. I mean, there's so many facts you can know. Mm -hmm. You can actually conclude, I'm not saying you can prove it, but you could reasonably conclude that he was raised from the dead, even if you only used those non-Christian historical sources. And then, of course, that his disciples maintained that testimony upon pain of death and torture. It's really thrilling when you really think about all the lines of evidence that God has given us to show that Christianity is true and it's reasonable. It's a reasonable faith. Yeah, and the interesting thing about that too is the fact that a lot of people will want to hear from those non-Christian sources, Elisa, and we we have them all in chapter nine of I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. When they do that, I sometimes detect a illicit assumption underneath that request. And here's the illicit assumption. They say, you know, you really can't trust the New Testament writers because you see they they had an agenda. They were biased. You can only trust the secular or non-Christian writers to tell us what happened to Jesus. Now, if you think about that for more than five seconds, you realize that's pretty silly. Why? Because what did the New Testament Jewish writers have to gain by saying Jesus had resurrected from the dead? They had nothing to gain from a temple perspective, everything to lose, right? They got beaten, tortured, and killed for saying this was true after they got kicked out of the synagogue. So, so this is not... There's no motive to invent this. If I'm going to believe anybody, it's I'm going to believe the eyewitnesses. They were there and they had every motive to say it wasn't true, not every motive to say it was true. So I, I get the idea of people saying, oh, you need non-Christian writers to validate it. We've got those, but you don't need them. It's the Jewish writers who had everything to lose by saying it was true and they said it was true anyway. That's right. All right, question. I recently saw a meme that said this person could not believe in a God who would cause suffering, meaning Job, just to win a bet with the devil. How would you mm-hmm. respond to that? I would I would ask, by what moral standard are you judging God for that? And I would also uh, ask them, have you ever allowed your children to go through any sort of pain and suffering for a reason? In fact, Alicia, you just brought it up earlier in the program, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you. You were you were pointing out about going to the dentist, right? That you got to take your kid to the dentist sometimes and the kid doesn't want to do it, but the kid's going to have to do it for a greater good. So it presupposes a moral standard, number one. Uh, number two, we do that with our own kids. Sometimes we allow them to go through difficulty in order to bring forth the greater good. Number three, when we see something that we don't quite understand, we can't see why would God allow such a thing to happen? We've got to take account of what's known as the ripple effect, that every event that occurs ripples forward into the future to affect trillions of other events. We can't see how all those ripples move forward in time. God can. God's outside of time. He can see the end from the beginning. We can't. Uh, Typically, the question is asked this way. Uh, Say a a couple in a church, they have a baby that gets sick. 
and they say, please pray for our baby. This is a serious illness. And the whole church prays and the baby dies anyway. And you go, I mean, the whole church is praying God. I mean, how does this make any sense? Well, it doesn't make any sense from a temporal perspective. So when someone asks, why do babies die? We can say, well, we know why babies die in general. This is a fallen world. Not everything's going to work out right. But if you're going to ask me, why did this baby die? I don't know, but I know why I don't know. I'm inside of time. I can only see a very small speck of time. I can't see the whole picture. God can. Maybe a baby dying today creates a series of ripples into the future that, I mean, trillions of ripples that 500 years from now partially causes a great evangelist to arise and save millions of people. Can we trace all those ripples? No, we can't, but God can. So what we have to do is just trust God. This is why at the end of the book of Job, God basically says to to Job, look, Job, you can't even tell me how the physical universe works. You're going to lecture me on the moral universe? You just have to trust me because you can't see the end from the beginning. I can see the end from the beginning, and I can allow all these ripples to go forward and bring good in the end. This is why the Christian can be confident because in the book of Romans, Paul says that we know that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. He doesn't say all things are good. There's a lot of evil out there. He says all things work together for good. Mm. And for those watching, if you just think about this, think about how many ripples had to occur for you to even exist, right? Your parents needed to meet. Their parents needed to meet. Their parents needed to meet. I mean, you could go on and on and all the ripples that occurred within those lives to bring you where you are right now. So when you see something that you think is inexplicable morally, you can't say there's God doesn't have a, a sufficiently moral uh, or a sufficient moral reason to allow this to occur. You can't because you don't know. Yeah. And I've heard that that argument before that, you know, that people have rejected even the Bible or God because of the Job story, and they use that language because God just did all that just to win a bet with the devil. <laughs> and I want to just say, you know, to even phrase the question that way, you have mm-hmm. to assume that God is sinful because God would have some sort of prideful motive or some uh, carnally competitive nature that, oh, I just have to win. And the assumption is that it's actually impugning the moral character of God to paint it that way, because the scripture certainly doesn't paint it that way. And um, it just seems like a pretty shallow uh, objection to me every time. But I hear it repeated quite a bit. And But you have to presuppose that God has some kind of a sinful nature that would cause him to do something just for that reason or, or something. But, you know, I don't know I think if people you also think have to through. say that um, you have to forget that this is written, this, the Bible's a story written from an observational perspective, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not a philosophy text. Okay. Although when it does speak philosophically, it speaks accurately. It's just like, it's not a science test. It's not a science textbook either, but when it does speak about cause and effect, it gets that right. So this is a story to help us understand uh, how God can allow evil in the world. And it, it, Job, they think, actually was written prior to the, to the Pentateuch. It was written prior to Genesis and, yeah. and, and the first five books of the Bible. It's an ancient story that deals with the most, one of the most vexing problems, not just for Christians, but for anyone. Why does evil exist? Well, the only worldview that can answer that is the Christian worldview. Okay, that's the only one. You, you know what the answer to evil is? God takes it upon himself. Mm. He 
He adds humanity to his deity. He comes to earth. He allows the creatures that rebelled against him to torture and kill him so he could remain just by taking their punishment on himself and offering the free gift of forgiveness to anybody that wants it. And if you don't want it, that's fine. God's not going to force you into heaven against your will, right? So the, 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 the only answer to evil is the Christian answer. Nothing else works. I agree. Here's another question. Can you iron out reading the Bible as objective truth because God is objective truth while also reading it in the context of the ancient cultures and belief systems it belonged to, which is more relative? I'm having a hard time combining the two in my mind. I don't know if if my answer is going to hit the nail on the head here because I'm trying to understand the question, but it might be that people will say, why, why are there different commands in the Old Testament than the New, right? And it was it a different culture back then? Yes, it was, okay. But why are the commands different? Because the commands are relative. I know it's going to sound weird, but just stick with me. The commands are relative, but the, the value behind the command is not. And, and let me explain what I mean. Um, say the some of the old testament commands like uh, don't eat shrimp uh stay away from mixed fabrics you know the part of the ceremonial law these kind of things those commands were commands that were culturally relative because god was teaching the israelites to be separate or to be holy set apart from the cultures around them the value behind the command was holiness the command itself was re- was relative okay the command that command could change not not a command based on the moral law like thou shall not murder those 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 the value and the command are the same but there are some commands that are are relative to the culture but they're trying to meet the same end they're trying to keep people holy or separate and so the value behind the command is love or holiness, but the command itself changes with the culture. And we do this as parents. Think about this. When your kid is very small, you, st- you say, stay out of the street, okay? Because the street can hurt you. What's the value behind the command? Love. You want to protect your child, right? But when the kid hits 18 or maybe not even that old, you say, hey, get out in the street and get a job, Right? Okay, what's the value behind the command? Love, you love your kid, you want your kid to succeed, but the command is exactly the opposite, right? Here's the the value behind the command has changed because circumstances has changed, or the value behind the command is the same, I should say, but the command itself has changed due to the changing circumstances. And so I I wonder if that that's where that question was going from. There are relative commands in the Bible based on the culture. They're relative to the culture. But the value behind the command is not relative. It's objective. God, God is trying to communicate love or holiness or some kind of, of, of value that needs to be changed based on the culture. That's good. Here's another question. Why can't there be more than one infinite being, and how does that disprove polytheism? Can there be different levels of gods? There can be different levels of spiritual beings. There are. Christians believe that. Muslims believe that, right? I'm sure polytheists believe that, right? You have stronger and weaker. We believe in angels and demons, and God has a divine counsel. See the Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser. But there can be one only infinite being. Why? Because for two beings to be different, 
one would have to have something the other being doesn't have. But the infinite being doesn't lack anything. So there can only be one infinite being because to differentiate one being from another being, one being has to lack what the other has and vice versa. But an infinite being doesn't lack anything. So there can only be one infinite being. You can't have multiple infinite beings. And if you reason back far enough, you're going to get back to an uncaused, timeless, spaceless, powerful, uh, personal, intelligent, moral being who is uncomposed. He has no parts. He's a simple being. That being is what the Bible calls the great I am. That is the same being, although maybe not with exactly the same attributes fleshed out as Aristotle's unmoved mover. You know, you have to get back to an uncaused first cause. In fact, one of the arguments for God, which I, I don't use uh, very often because uh, it takes a little philosophical knowledge, uh, uh, pre-existing knowledge to, to grasp these kinds of arguments, but one is the argument from composition. Everything that is made of parts is composed, which means someone must have put it together. But you can't go on an infinite regress of composers. Ultimately, you're going to get back to an uncomposed composer who is a simple being, has no parts himself, and has composed everything else. That's what we mean by God. So there can yeah. only be one infinite being. Good. Um, some progressives say Revelation was written in code to prevent Roman leaders from understanding what they were speaking about. They say Revelation is not about the future, but about the present day when it was written. How would you address this? I'm not sure I I've would... heard progressives use this argument because, uh, to be honest with you, Frank, I haven't read a lot of progressive interpretations of Revelation. This sounds mm -hmm. a little bit more to me like a preterist view or something like that, but what, what, how would you respond to this? Um, I would not respond to it other than say, well, what do you mean by that and how would you come to that conclusion? Because when somebody makes a claim, it's not your job to refute what they say, it's their job to support what they say. So I would ask them, why do you think that's the case? Uh, and what evidence do you have for that position? Okay, I think, uh, well, first of all, the full preterist position, which you just mentioned, Elisa, uh, which believes that everything in Revelation has already occurred is considered a heresy. It's not, we don't think Jesus has come back and, right all, and, and has, has, has righted all wrongs and defeated the Antichrist and defeated Satan and has locked them in and thrown them into the, the, the lake of burning sulfur, the burning fire, or any of this. No, we, we don't think that's, all, that's already happened. Uh, we might say that maybe some of it has happened. That's a preterist, uh, a partial preterist view, but not a full preterist view. So I, I think it's quite obvious that not all of that has happened. Uh, and so if someone's trying to say that, I think that would be clearly refuted just by looking at, say, chapter 19 through 22 of Genesis. I mean, I'm sorry, Revelation 19 and 22. That hasn't happened yet. Jesus hasn't come back and led and destroyed the armies and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, bifurcated heaven and hell and thrown the beast and, and uh, the Antichrist into the, into the lake of sulfur. And we're not, we're not in a new heavens and new earth yet. So how could you ever say all that's happened yet? I don't, I don't, I don't understand why that's even a, a viable position. Yeah. All right, here's a question about the moral law. Uh, moral law, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring. Could the enmity be the moral law written on our hearts? 
I would need more clarification, but I don't think so. The, the, the enmity is the fact that there is going to be uh, opposition between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of Eve. And ultimately, the offspring of Eve is going to crush the head of the offspring of Satan. It's, a, it's the first prophecy in the Bible. The first prophecy in the Bible right there is that as soon as Adam and Eve have sinned, God sets in the rescue plan that he had planned from all eternity to bring the promised Messiah as the offspring of Eve to save the entire world. So I don't, I don't think it has anything to do with the moral law other than the moral law is necessary for us to know we need a savior because if there is no morality, there is no sin. And if there's no sin, you don't need a savior. All right, we'll take a couple more. We're about out of time, but let's go here to uh, Paul Murray on YouTube. How is it just for Christ to take our place? An atheist friend sees this as being incredibly unjust, especially given God is supposedly or is supposed to be perfectly just. Well, Paul unpacks this clearly in Romans 3.26 when he says, so as to be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus, Christ died for our sins. Christ wasn't forced to the cross. Christ voluntarily went to the cross. And this, I want to hear your insights on this, Elisa, because this goes right to the denial of the atonement. Uh, you know, these people are trying to say, oh, it's unjust for God to punish Jesus in our place. Not if Jesus takes our punishment on himself. A story I often tell when I go to a college campus is the story of Michael Monsor, the United States Navy SEAL, who was on a roof in Ramadi on September 29th, 2006, and he had two Navy SEALs lying in the sniper-prone position next to him when an insurgent threw a grenade up on the roof and it hit Monsor in the chest and it fell to his feet. He had only a split second to make a decision. There was a doorway behind him that he could have leapt through and saved himself. But instead of that, he yelled grenade, and then he dove on the grenade that was right next to his two teammates. It detonated. 30 minutes later, Michael Monsor was dead, and his two teammates receive only minor injuries because Monsor's body muffled the blast. In fact, one of the survivors said at Monsor's funeral, he said, Mikey looked death in the face that day and said, you will not take my friends. I will go in their stead. And I've never seen a United States president cry until April of 2008. That's when President George W. Bush invited Monsor's parents into the East Room of the White House to give them their son's Medal of Honor posthumously because Monsor gave up his life to save his friends. He wasn't forced to do it. Nobody would have blamed him if he had leapt through the doorway and saved himself, but he did it. And then in 2019, the United States Navy commissioned the USS Michael Monsor. A, a guided missile destroyer out of San Diego, where he was from. Mm. And uh, yeah. nobody says that Monsor was unjust for diving on the grenade. Everybody hails him as a hero, rightfully so, because he gave up his life to save others. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what Jesus did, except the only difference is Jesus didn't dive, a, didn't die on a, uh, a dive on a grenade to save just his friends. He dove on a grenade to save his enemies. Yeah. Nobody does that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, this whole this whole idea of it being unjust, I think it reveals a couple of 
possible misunderstandings. It would only be unjust if Jesus were an unwilling victim or Mm -hmm. if it was something that was happening to him that he had no power or control over. But I think a a robust understanding of the Trinity settles this. In Christian theology, God is one being in three persons. And Mm -hmm. God is justice. Like you mentioned before, he's not composed of parts. He's not like a pie where he's got like a justice piece and a love piece and a, you know, other attributes like are all pieces of the pie. He is one, he is fully just, fully good, fully love. And we only know what those words mean because they're based on his nature and character. So his love and his justice are not two parts of the same being. They are fully integrated. They're literally the same thing. And so in his justice, it says that in the Old Testament, his his revealed word coming from justice itself is that there's no forgiveness for sins without the shedding of blood. And so God, instead of getting some sort of hapless victim that had no power or control over the thing, he doesn't do that, actually. In fact, he says, I'll do it. And then we have the incarnation, God in flesh, Jesus living that life that none of us could have lived, that sinless life, and then taking our sins upon himself. And he himself said that's what he was doing in the upper room the mm. night before he was betrayed in Luke 22. He, you know, we we have that famous scene we all remember where he, he institutes communion with the bread and the wine, but later that night, he refers to Isaiah 53. Now, if anyone's unfamiliar with the prophecy of Isaiah 53, it's a prophecy that was hundreds of years before Jesus. It was about what theologians call this suffering, ser- uh, suffering servant. And whatever this, whoever this person was, they were going to be taking the sins of the world. Uh, it, it, It would please the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, it says in Isaiah 53. And the Lord has laid on him uh, the sins of us all. And there's punishment language in Isaiah 53. There is payment language in Isaiah 53. And Jesus identifies himself as the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. And he does this in Luke 22. And so uh, when I think about this whole claim that it's unjust for Jesus to stand in our place. It's really the only just option, unless you take the wrath of God for yourself. You Mm -hmm, know, that would mm -hmm. be just. But Mm -hmm. God says, you know what, I'm going to do it instead. And I think that how Jesus would respond to the charge of it being unjust or cosmic child abuse or something like that, there's a scene where Jesus predicts his death and his resurrection. And Peter opposes him. And he's he's basically like, no, no, we're don't, we're not gonna do that, you know, not that. And Jesus, what does he say? He says, Get behind me, Satan, for you have your mind on the things of earth and not on things of of uh, the of heaven or of, of the Lord. I don't have it right in front of me. But I think that's what Jesus would say when we say, well, it's unjust. He would say, you have your mind on things on earth. You don't have your mind on heavenly things if that's what you think. And so justice himself would say, no, it's not unjust. And I think that's who we go with. And again, as you mentioned earlier, he's the guy that raised himself from the dead. So we we do what he says when it comes to all this stuff. You know, it was uh, uh, you, you just brought up another one of those embarrassing details. Who would have made up that the Lord called the leader of the disciples Satan? Right. That's <laughs> not something yeah. they're going to make up. And then the same guy says, oh, Lord, I'll never deny you. He does it three times. They all run away at the crucifixion. I mean, the women are the first witnesses. This is not a made-up story, ladies and gentlemen. You couldn't, yeah. you would never make this up. You would never make yourself look so bad as all this is going on. Right. 
All right, well, we let's do one more, and then sure. we'll let everybody go. This is from Cesar. Question, how is God going to judge those who have never heard of Christ? Say, a Japanese person living at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. Is it safe to assume that they're predestined for hell? First of all, you don't go to hell because you've never heard of Jesus. You go to hell because you've sinned. It would be like saying, um, I went... Uh, I died because I didn't go to the doctor. No, you died because you had a disease. Now, maybe you could have prevented dying by going to the doctor, just like you could prevent eternal death by going to the great physician. But the reason you're dying is because you have a disease. And the reason we go to hell is because we've sinned. Now, notice this question is another moral question, Elisa. There's mm -hmm. a moral core behind this saying, well, it's somehow immoral for God if he doesn't get his gospel to everyone. Now, I have a long answer that you can go to our YouTube channel and see, but in the interest of time, I'll kind of give you the short answer here. We know that people were saved without knowing the name of Jesus prior to, prior to Christ. Nobody knew the name of Jesus prior to Christ. They were saved by just trusting in Yahweh. Is it possible philosophically that people could still be saved that way today? Yeah, philosophically it's possible. Sure seems, though, that the Bible seems to say you need to know the name. Well, what about those that have never heard the name? Well, we know people who hear the gospel and don't believe it, right? Several people that you probably know, maybe many people watching right now, you've heard the gospel, but you don't believe it. Well, it could be that those that never hear the gospel wouldn't have believed it anyway. I mean, that's certainly possible, right? In fact, Paul even says, when he's talking to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, he says, God has appointed the times and places where people should live uh, so that people would reach out to him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. It could be that God has so prearranged the world that only the people that uh, want to be saved hear the gospel, or let me put it another way, that people who never hear the gospel wouldn't have believed it anyway. We know at the end of the day that the best way to save people is to get them the gospel. That's why we risk all to get people the gospel. But at the end of the day, nobody in the afterlife is going to say, you know, God, I got a raw deal. If, I, if I'd mm -hmm. only had somebody tell me about this, I would have believed. Nobody's going to say that, right? Because God is just, and he wants more people. He wants people to be saved more than we do, Elisa. And, and if he wants all to be saved and some people aren't saved, it's largely because they don't want to be saved. But mm -hmm. we have been given the privilege and the dignity of causality to get people the gospel. And that's why we risk all to get people the gospel. I leave in the hands of God, uh, you know, the people who've never heard, uh, other than me trying to get them the gospel right now. In fact, C.S. Lewis famously said this, if you're worried about people who have never heard, um, the most illogical thing you can do is keep yourself out of the kingdom. He said it would be an odd way uh, to get people to get a man to do more work by cutting off his fingers, mm. right? What you want to do, if you're concerned about the people that have never heard, is join the body of Christ and spread the gospel to them. That's what you want to do, right? Yeah. You don't want to stand outside and go, well, I just can't see how this could be fair, right? right? First of all, you're assuming a moral standard. And secondly, you know that God, since he is infinitely just and infinitely loving, is not going to be fair or, or it's not going to be unfair in the afterlife. That's right. There's only three, well, there's really only two things you can get in the afterlife. You can either get justice, none of us want that, uh, or you can get grace. That's it. Yeah. And so I, and I, I want to tell people the story of grace. 
That's right. And I think this an, this question is so so clearly answered in it just in my view in Romans 1. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For Mm -hmm. what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Every person who's been born has access to knowledge of God. It says in verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And so every single person who's ever been born has access to not just knowledge that God exists, but actually can know and perceive clearly things about Mm -hmm. his divine nature and his attributes. And it says, although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so I I have a a theory, it's speculation, of course, very similar to what you're saying, that, you know, possibly God arranges people in certain places around the globe who have already rejected. Why would he send the gospel to someone who has already rejected him? But then also, as we both know, uh, we we hear stories coming out of the Muslim world of people Mm -hmm, having mm -hmm. dreams where maybe somebody didn't uh, reject God out of, you know, from looking around in nature. I have a friend who works with refuge, uh, Muslim refugees, and she eventually gets to share the gospel with many of them. And she says, I can't tell you how many times somebody, I will tell them about Jesus. And they'll say, well, I already know him. He's been coming to me in my dreams ever since I was little. She said, it's very wow. common, happens all the time. Wow. And it so, I, you know, I think that that it's so presumptive of us to say people have never heard. We, you don't know that, first of all, and God is fully just. And we have evidence in scripture here that every single person has access to that knowledge. And if they reject it, why would he send the gospel? Yeah. Why would he send them more light? You know, if you shine a pen light in somebody's eye and they turn away, putting a flashlight in their, in their eyes is going to make them even more annoyed. So yeah, people, if they're not going to take a step toward natural revelation, general revelation, which is just what Romans one's talking about, as you mentioned, Elisa, they're not going to be interested in more revelation but god is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him if you if you take a step toward natural revelation the idea that you know there has to be a creator and designer out there who's moral because you have creation conscience design everybody knows that whether they have a bible or not if you take a step toward that and want to know more god will get you either a missionary and elisa childers broadcast a pastor a dream or a vision uh, a bible of some kind He's going to get you the word so you can be saved because he wants people to be saved more than we do. Very good. Any last words, Frank? Well, I just want to encourage everybody to keep supporting Elisa because she's doing great work here. So sign up for Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash Elisa Childers. I did not ask him to say that. (laughs) uh, No, and help her and Mike do what they're doing because they're doing great work. Look, everybody... This is why the body or, or Christianity is a body, because not not all of us can do everything well. And uh, so we need people who are specialized. And Elisa, you can do any apologetics. But what's really uh, a trending right now is deconstructionism and, and progressive Christianity. So help Elisa spread the word by supporting her at Patreon. Also, the course that Elisa is going to be teaching, if you go to onlinechristiancourses.com or you go to just crossexamine.org and click on online courses, you'll see it there. That starts next week, friends. You can be a part of it. Uh, We only have uh, a few seats left because we cut it off after a certain point. So if you want to be a part of that, 
sign up for that. And Lisa, let me say one other thing. I don't know how many people have heard of CIA, but you're going to be part of CIA this year as well. Yeah. Cross-examine Instructor Academy. If you want to play, if you want to spend three days with Elisa, myself, Jay Warner Wallace, Greg Kokel, Brad Kunkel, uh, Abdu Murray, several others, and learn how to present apologetics and answer questions better, go to crossexamine.org, click on events, you'll see CIA there. It's going to be in Cincinnati this summer. I think it starts July 28th. It's three days. We spend like all day and night together practically. It's a lot of fun. We only take 60 students. That's it. Because not only do we present to you, you present to us. So you may have Elisa as your instructor. Yeah. And and for anyone who doesn't know, CIA and specifically Frank are the reason I'm even doing this. I went to CIA in 2016 thinking I wasn't going to do apologetics. I thought the world had enough blogs and information. I just went there to hone my skills teaching an apologetics class in my church. And as an end cap to my apologetics phase and my reconstruction, I wanted to meet all these guys that had helped so much. And Frank said, you need to start a blog. And so, you know, when Frank Turek tells you to start a blog, you start a blog. Well, that morphed into the podcast and the YouTube channel and the books and all of that. So it's, uh, you know, really, truly CIA and Frank and Jay Werner Wallace specifically specifically, were so hugely instrumental in me even doing what, what I'm doing today. So go to crossexamine.org to register for that if you think it might be something you're interested in. Um, but Frank, thank you so much for, for joining us this uh, for great discussion, great questions, everybody. And again, um, I will let everybody know that if you want to be a part of the book club, go to facebook.com slash groups slash Elisa Childers book club. We will be picking a new book very soon. And and the book club is now open. Now it's for like-minded Christians, so you got to sign a belief statement, got to sign uh, agreeing to the rules. This is not a debate club. These are Christians who want to learn and grow and walk through books together. So again, facebook.com/groups/alisachilders book club. Frank, thank you so much, and everybody have a great night, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. See you.